Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Whatever it takes for as long as is needed, the ECB unveils an $800 billion asset buying plan, and yet more is needed. A pivotal moment, China says no new local infections of coronavirus in the last 24 hours. And breaking the internet, unprecedented global at-home use makes streaming shows in high definition now a threat. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. Welcome to First Move, everyone. Great to have you with us. It is the first day of spring and oh boy, are we in need of some green shoots here. So step forward, the European Central Bank shooting a $750 billion plus bazooka, a new asset buying plan. They announced it around midnight last night. And the real kicker here, they basically said, as I mentioned, they will buy anything if that's what it takes. And guys, as I've been saying, that's what tackling this crisis is going to take. Look for the message once again in the markets. The midnight announcement lent a bit of support to some very fragile stock markets. You can see red arrows aside, US futures are right now lower. The key is bond yields. This is what's happening in Europe. They are lower. And that's what we need to focus on. Just imagine the stress being placed on the economies, on small businesses in Italy and Spain, just to pick two at this moment with the whole nation on lockdown. These nations need to borrow. High borrowing costs is simply not going to help. So we have to see these bond yields come down. All this following another 6% drop yesterday. The Dow now down some 32% from all-time highs. And it begins the session, the Dow, below 20,000. But these numbers at this moment are pretty irrelevant. Let me give you some more sobering statistics. 63% of companies in the S&P 500 have fallen 50% or more this year. 16 stocks in the index have plunged 70% or more. The bottom line, investors are simply being forced to sell good companies with the bad, good assets with the bad. They're dumping safe haven treasuries. People are now hoarding the US dollar. They're pulling huge amounts from the money markets. Now, the Federal Reserve is trying to fight this latest fire with a new facility announced overnight. The problem is all this pressure backs up and this pressure is virtually global. This is the key. When investors are selling like this, Central banks need to be buying and governments, governments need to be supporting too, because in the end, it's the most vulnerable in society that will pay the highest price again. More work's needed. Let's get to the drivers. Christine Romans joins me now. Christine, another sobering start to my show, but, but it's a realist. It's being a realist. Um, people are talking about the fact that the, the country 
countries are going into recession. I'm more comfortable using the term potential depression at this stage if support, more support, isn't forthcoming. Yeah, and you have so many economists uh, and market strategists who are sharpening their pencils again and lowering their forecasts uh, for the second quarter. I mean, you're seeing 10% contraction, 12% contraction forecasts. And most people are saying that if governments and central banks can get it right, things turn around and you reboot the economy, the global economy, later this year again. But that is making the big assumption that the stimulus, the fiscal and monetary policy is right. It's big and it's bold and it's right. On the micro level, uh, you see right now people are feeling this. The most vulnerable, as you put it so rightly, uh, are feeling this. We saw a surge in jobless claims, state jobless claims. Some of these states uh, seeing tens of thousands of, of jobless claims just in the past few days. Those are people who've lost their jobs in leisure, in uh, in, in hospitality, at bars and restaurants and hotels, and are, are going to have have to be on uh, jobless benefits, unemployment benefits that are not, in many cases, exactly what they were earning before. So you're seeing the stress on families and workers already. Yeah, I mean, you know, I can throw more stats into this. And I know you know these statistics well, but we keep talking about the big major markets. The S&P 500, it's only 15% of the employment in the United States. The rest of them are working in small and medium-sized enterprises. There's people clearly that aren't working. Uh, At this stage, the the mammoth task that's required here, the, the inequality in the system that makes the most vulnerable so at risk here is being revealed in the space of two weeks. It really is. And, you know, and I think back to 2008 and 2009 and a similar conversation was happening. Get the money out there. It doesn't even matter how you spend it. Get it out there so that we can support these industries and get the banking system whole again and keep the airlines from going out of business, et cetera, et cetera. But the income inequality and the fragility of the bottom, I would, the bottom, you know, quintiles of the, of the income strata are the same today as they were back then. We didn't fix some of those things. And I I worry, and this is maybe too... Uh, too big picture at a time of a crisis. But, you know, we we squander the good times, as Jamie Dimon from J.P. Morgan Chase likes to say, you know, you fix the roof when the sun is shining. We didn't do that. We spent more money, blew up deficits, gave tax cuts that weren't paid for, right? And, and, and then when the times are bad, you're blowing up deficits, spending a lot of money again, right, without maybe fixing some of the fundamental uh, inefficiencies of, of, uh, of the system. And I think that that's sort of a, a, a sad comment uh, 10 years, 11 years after the last crisis to be making some, maybe making some of the same mistakes again. And you know what, Christine, I couldn't agree more with you. The buybacks, the tax benefits that people didn't deserve and have spent incorrectly, everything, all of these things, the focus or lack of focus on the environment, all these things matter. They simply don't matter today because we don't have time. We don't have time to argue over the details right christine thank you replay the tape (laughs) yeah we'll come back to it i hope but for now throw money at the situation just to shore up everything thank you all right cue more fiscal stimulus the european central bank has unveiled its own worth more than 800 billion dollars to cushion the coronavirus blow to business anna stewart joins us now anna i know you've been looking at the details this was a midnight 
European time announcement. They couldn't even wait till the weekend here. <laughs> it's not even about the size, though, for me here from the European Central Bank. It's how open-ended this is. I think it really took everyone by surprise, not least that the ECB has finally stepped up. It, there was a general feeling that not enough was done at the meeting last week. And they joined uh, similar measures from the UK, Japan, Canada, Switzerland, the US, of course, uh, over $800 billion in this, what they're calling the Pandemic Emergency Purchase Program. Essentially, QE at vast scale, lasting until the end of the year. And as you said, crucially, it's the fact that of the assets. It's not just the usual suspects. We're talking all sorts of public and private debt, even Greek debt. This is the first time that Greek debt has been included in an ECB stimulus program, a QE program, since the financial crisis. So that is absolutely crucial. Bonds have rallied. There has been a good reaction. It has landed well. We've seen yields, which, of course, go inversely, drop the Italian tenure down 1.4%, Greek down over 3%. And also it's what happens next. The ECB is also considering other things. Could it lift limits on buying only a third of a country's sovereign debt? Economists trying to get even further ahead. Will we see the ECB impose caps on some sovereign bond yields? So plenty more to come. It does seem to be settling some investor concern. Yeah, Anna, this for me actually is very illuminating and a message to other central banks and to other governments. We all watched how Europe struggled with the European debt crisis. No, we're not going to save them. No, we aren't. Yes, we are. No, this is them saying, throw all of that out of the window. Rescue the system. That's the, the message here. And the shift in tone, Julia, from that meeting uh, with the ECB last week with Christine Lagarde, I mean, honestly, the shift in tone is extraordinary. Last week, it was about putting more pressure on governments to introduce their own fiscal policies. Yes, that is critical and it has to be coordinated. But also, we need to see more from the central banks, from the ECB. Some of the comments that Christine Lagarde made last week were considered unhelpful. For instance, she said... And it's not the central bank's job to close the spread in bond markets. I want to show you a tweet uh, from the last 24 hours from Christine Lagarde. She says, extraordinary times require extraordinary action. There are no limits to our commitment to the euro. We are determined to use the full potential of our tools within our mandate. So early, Julia, in her ECB career. And already, I think we're having a draggy uh, whatever it takes moment. Yeah, I, I agree with the first sentence. I disagree with the second sentence. This is about something way bigger than the euro. This is about something way bigger than just the euro. Mm. Anna, great job. Thank you. Anna Stewart there. Now, time perhaps for a glimmer of light. We could be seeing a major turning point in the battle against the coronavirus. For the first time, China says no new locally transmitted cases were diagnosed in the past 24 hours. Authorities say they counted 34 new infections, but say all of them were people entering China from abroad. David Culver is live in Shanghai for us. David, that last sentence there concerns me greatly, but talk to me about the details, assuming we trust the information, but tell me the details because I think we need to hear this. The sourcing of all of this is important to keep in mind, Julia. It is data that comes from the National Health Commission from China. But we also need to stress the World Health Organization has relied on this data. And President Trump was even asked about it 
uh, just last week and said uh, that as far as he's concerned, the numbers seem to be positive and, and look to be trending in the right direction. So he seems to be relying on uh, as well. But yeah, this is all coming from China. Uh, and they're saying no new locally transmitted cases. That is a major milestone uh, and certainly significant in the turnaround of this outbreak and, and their control of it, so it seems. But your point on this 34 uh, increase of, of really imported cases is how they're describing it. What does that mean? All right, that means folks who are coming from outside of China coming here into the People's Republic. And so you go back just a few weeks and we can think of when everyone else uh, internationally was focused on anyone traveling from mainland China and was really concerned and putting in travel bans. Now it seems that China's worried about all the other countries and travelers coming back here, uh, potentially bringing with them the virus and exposing others. So what are they doing? Well, within Beijing's Capital International Airport, they have set up strict screening that requires all international travelers to go through a, a screening and evaluation process. They then will be required to spend 14 days in a government-designated facility before they can then continue on to their final destination, either within Beijing or within other parts of mainland China. We're also seeing, interestingly enough, Julia, that while these numbers are looking positive, China is moving forward with increasing hospital capacity, according to the World Health Organization, and they're also continuing in requesting and manufacturing ventilators. So it seems to suggest that they are keeping their minds on a potential spike or second wave, if you will, once restrictions start to ease. Because go to Wuhan, the epicenter of all of this, and there still is the extreme lockdown measure in place, meaning folks are, are basically sealed inside their homes. It's eight weeks ago today that that lockdown went into place. So that's eight weeks that they've been in that situation. Uh, so you can imagine mental health is certainly being tried at this point and, and they're feeling it. But at the same time, the government and local officials in particular are really concerned as, as to when you ease up on these restrictions and people start to move around, thereby potentially increasing the risk of more exposure around the country. So that's why they're keeping hospital capacity at an increased state right now. While they've closed the field hospitals, the designated hospitals are still in place and they're going to potentially use that space to treat any influx as they're ultimately trying to get back to business. Because that's what this is going to be about, too. You've got to think David. about restarting the economy here and that's yes. going to require people to, to really get all together. David, there was so much in there, but your point there about the length of time we're talking about circles back to all the support measures, the economic damage, what's required to try and suppress this that we've already been discussing on the show Great to have you with us. Thank you for that. All right, the EU has urged Netflix to slow streaming or risk breaking the internet. The web under unprecedented strain as hundreds of millions of people log on from home, working from home, of course, but also streaming movies, just trying to entertain themselves. Hadis Gold joins me now. It's understandable, Hadis. We've sort of been thinking about this, I think, for the last week. We've never seen use like this. People working from home, people watching movies from home. Yeah, Julia, I am right now streaming live to CNN from my living room, and I'm just one person. So multiply me by perhaps hundreds of millions of people who are working from home, whose kids are also at home trying to do distance learning, or perhaps just trying to entertain themselves 
watching movies on streaming services. And now the EU and EU commissioner, Thierry Breton, who's in charge of the EU internal markets, has warned services like Netflix and people in general to please switch to standard definitions. This is what we know as SD instead of high definition because high definition takes up a lot more bandwidth than standard definition. In fact, Breton said that he has had conversations with Netflix CEO Reed Hastings yesterday. He is set to have another one with him today to try to urge pretty much these streaming services to force their customers to do SD because of the fear of the strain on the infrastructure. Now, as far as we can tell, Although there is a huge increase in people obviously using the internet, using the infrastructure, there hasn't been any sort of outages or breakdowns. But the fear is that as we continue day by day and as more and more people sign on, I'm sure lots of people are signing on for new streaming services, they're buying video games, they're doing all of these things that are putting extra weight on the system that typically most of us would be in our offices or the students would be in school. It's not used to this type of strain. And that's why there is a fear that as this continues to go on, possibly for weeks, possibly for months, there needs to be some sort of change in the system so that it can continue to support all of us as we try to continue with some sort of semblance of normal life, Julia. I know. If it weren't so serious and the situation so serious, I would say it's quite exciting to look inside people's homes at these, uh, at these moments and uh, just look at your <laughs> setup. But um, yeah, no time for that. Had a scold. Great job. Thank you so much for that. All right, you're watching First Move. Our coverage of the coronavirus outbreak and its impact on the global economy will continue after the break. But first, a warning for young people everywhere from the White House's top coronavirus doctor. Watch this. There are concerning reports coming out of France and Italy about some young people getting seriously ill. It may have been that the millennial generation, our largest generation, our future generation um, that will carry us through for the next multiple decades. There may be disproportional number of infections among that group. Welcome back to First Move. Deutsche Bank's disturbing projections for a forthcoming global recession. It's predicting a real GDP contraction in the second quarter by 24% in the euro area. That includes a 28% contraction in Germany and 13% in the United States. Let's just give you some context because they do. US growth declined 8% in a single quarter during the Great Recession of 1980 and the global financial crisis. Deutsche Bank itself put it like this. The uncertainty bands around these projections are even wider than they were previously. These numbers are significantly beyond the range of modern historical experience. On the phone, Peter Hooper, who is the global head of economic research at Deutsche Bank. He spent 26 years at the Federal Reserve Board and was an economist at, on the FOMC. Peter, I'm very grateful that, you, uh, that you're joining us this morning. These numbers look bad. And my fear is that given what you're saying about the, the band of uncertainty here, it could be even worse. Julia, <clears throat> uh, absolutely. Uh, certainly tremendous uncertainty. We're, we're hopeful that things do not turn out this badly, but uh, we could certainly see a worse, uh, a worse outcome. We have the benefit now of seeing what's happened in China already. They're, they're several months ahead of us. Uh, we had we had a plunge in consumer spending in China. We think that their their uh, GDP declined in the first is declining in the first quarter at a rate 
uh, 10% at a quarterly rate, uh, 35% at an annual rate. Um, tremendous, tremendous uh, impact there. This is what caused us over the over the past weekend to to revise our view uh, to something much much more negative for the for the overall global economy. Um, China had the benefit of, uh, of of keeping people in their jobs while out, out, uh, this output loss was occurring. Government the government uh, basically uh, funded companies to allow people to keep their jobs. Uh, that's not happening in, in the U.S. Uh, we we, did, we saw this morning a, a significant increase in jobless claims. Uh, we're likely over the weeks ahead to see millions of people losing their jobs with these kinds of output uh, declines. Um, fortunately, the, the government is uh, <laughs> is getting the message. We're talking about huge stimulus packages, um, but they have to be well designed. We need to have job loss support. People who lose their jobs, we have to we really have to beef, beef up our unemployment uh, benefits. We also have to beef up tremendously our support for small businesses. I mean, the best thing we can do is fund small businesses to allow people to keep their jobs through this crisis, whether it lasts weeks or months. Uh, and uh, I have to say that the assumptions underlying our forecast are for a couple months of this. Uh, yes, things could be better, but one can also imagine scenarios that would be a lot worse. Peter, I'm just trying to get a sense of the, the scale of stimulus, whether it's central bank, whether it's government spending that's required to bridge a gap, an effective shutdown of not just the United States economy for, for two to three months, potentially, but given everything else that's going on in the world. You, you gave some charts and you don't even need to see the numbers. My viewers don't need to see the numbers. They're, they're V-shaped. They're looking at a V-shaped recovery, which most people think is just impossible at this stage, how much more stimulus, support, spending, money is required? I mean, I've been throwing numbers around like three, four, five trillion dollars of economic stimulus. Throw cash at people, to your point, a treasury fund for SME lending. I, it's too big for me to imagine what's required here, and yet we need to do it, and we need to do it fast. Absolutely. Our, our forecast is a V because we assume that there will be massive government support coming Define on screen massive. and that it will be, it will be allocated intelligently. Uh, there are, there is talk now uh, in, in Congress of uh, adding to the, to the package. They're, they're now passing another trillion dollars in support. That's 5% of GDP. It's not enough. We assume that, that much is coming from the U.S. Uh, How much more is it. required? We're looking at, at a more prolonged downturn. How much more is required, Peter? I, I just one trillion dollars to me is a drop in the ocean. Uh, trillion dollars, five percent of GDP. If it's if it's spent wisely, if we support small business, if we support people who are losing their jobs, if we put it where it's going to be most needed, we can. This this can help tide us over. Peter, I want to um, I want to draw as well on your experience at the uh, the FOMC at the Federal Reserve. What we saw the European Central Bank doing overnight was saying we will buy anything if that is what is required. I look at the Federal Reserve and they simply don't have the mandate for that. They can't buy other debt products. They can't buy equities if that's what's required. I know I'm talking in extremes here. What's the probability? Do you think? 
given what we're seeing globally and the stresses on the system that the rules are forced to change? Uh, the Fed during, during the financial crisis did set up a number of different types of lending facilities uh, to, to get cash out to the, to the private sector through loans uh, using collateral. Uh, I think things could be bad enough here that we might even see Congress entertain changing the Federal Reserve Act to allow them to do more of the sort of thing that the uh, European Central Bank is doing to purchase more private assets to, to support the private sector. But one way or another, uh, there's no question in my mind that the Fed is going is all out. Uh, and, yes. and yes, this morning, this morning, that uh, announcement by the ECB, most impressive. This is we'll do what it takes. Peter, the fact that you're even discussing changing the Fed Act here and, and seeing that, and I agree with you, I think it's what's going to be required, gives me goosebumps. Peter, great to have you with us. Peter Hooper, the Global Head of Economic Research there at Deutsche Bank. The market opens next. Stay with us. To first move, you saw the opening bell there from the New York Stock Exchange, one of the last ones for a while. The New York Stock Exchange is going to be closing its trading floor temporarily next week to help protect New York Stock Exchange workers from the coronavirus. Just to be clear, the trading will be done digitally. It will be done by computers. This is not about the stock exchange closing. It will continue to trade. Very, very important. That's a look how the markets are trading. It is a weaker open on Wall Street. Nowhere near as bad, though, as yesterday when we were fearing another 15-minute trading halt. What we need to see is a slowdown in the intense, indiscriminate selling pressure that's overtaken equity markets, but also other asset classes. We've been talking about this. We're even seeing some buying in bonds. And yesterday we saw pressure on equities and we saw pressure on bonds too. At this moment, we're seeing bond yields falling a little bit. So that means some buying activity going on in bonds. And, and that's an important sign as well. Demand, though, for the safe haven US dollar has been intense. The dollar index hitting three-year highs, making big gains against virtually all other currencies. And this makes sense in this kind of an environment. You go to the to the world's reserve currency, and that remains the US dollar. Now, the European Central Bank announced stimulus in excess of $800 billion in the latest of such announcements coming from global central banks. As we've been reporting, several European governments now, take a look at these numbers, are committing to rescue packages that equal up to 20% of their entire GDP. That's the message that European nations are sending. Anthony Scaramucci is founder and managing partner of Skybridge Investment Firm. He's also former White House communications director. Um, Anthony, great to have you with us. Um, I know you get it. I know you get what's going on in the financial sector. You can see what's going on in the economy. You also know it's global because I, I watch your, your social media and your Twitter handle. We're on the same page. You're talking three, four, five, maybe more trillion dollars thrown at this system. Yep. Talk me through it. Well, okay, so let's just step back. This is literally like a combination of uh, 9-11, the global financial crisis, 
and an invasion of every nation's homeland. And so when you step back and look at it from that perspective, the United States was spending in deficit spending during the 1940s, during the war, between 20 and 26 percent of GDP. And so what I'm calling for is we're, we're, we're putting a trillion dollars on now pro forma, adding another $3.2 trillion. That gets you to 20% of the GDP, Julia. And if you go through the math and you look at the per unit, per capita consumption of each individual in the United States, and you're going to need about six months worth of firepower here, uh, you can give out $3,000 to each adult, $1,500 to each child. You can uh, have a tax furlough for a period of time, and then you could create an accordion-like structure for companies, uh, large and small companies, whether it's Boeing or your local barber shop, they can come up with either a loan program or a grant program to try to keep these businesses on life support until the quarantine passes. And so if we don't do that, uh, I was listening to your last conversation, I'm in agreement with you. I think the trillion dollars is a drop in the bucket. 5% of GDP is about six weeks worth of firepower and we need something like six months worth of firepower. Yeah, we need extreme at this stage. Earlier on in the show, I was talking about the the revealing of the lack of support, any form of social safety net here to, to contain this kind of overnight switch off. Um, and a lot of what I see in the debate out there, and I think they're missing the point, is that you can't bail out big companies. You can't do this. They've been buying back stocks. Um, no time for that, quite frankly. You also have and I completely agree with you, measures to try and tackle some of that, save the system, shore up all companies, but you're saying stop buybacks, stop bonuses, yeah, well, suspend dividends if, if for five those, years. The, yeah. Right, exactly. If those companies need to come into the government capital markets for capital, then they have to agree that they can't do share buybacks or dividends for a long period of time until, of course, that money is paid back. And then they also have to have that they can't lay off their employees. And so um, we can fix this thing. It is a seismic moment for Western democracies right now. Uh, we have been agonizing over the gap in wealth over the last, let's say, two decades. This is an opportunity. Uh, in America, we would call it a bailout of Main Street as opposed to Wall Street. And I just want to remind everybody, this is not the financial crisis. This is a totally different event. This is a consumption depression. This is a decline in aggregate demand that we have not seen in the modern era. You can't even go back to the 2933 depression and look at data that we're looking at right now for the second and possibly third quarter. So the United States, other Western democracies have to come in here and bail out the local barber, bail out the local uh, deli or coffee shop uh, and try to keep a, a line of credit available or a grant available for restaurants and things like that. If we do not do this, uh, you will have a situation where you'll have 20 to 25 percent unemployment. A lot of these small businesses, uh, the great tragedy in America and perhaps in other parts of the West and maybe around the world is people are living paycheck to paycheck. Right. And in these small businesses, they're, they're living weekly revenues to weekly revenues. And the difference between now and the financial crisis, and I'll say it's financial crisis on steroids and the steroids are on steroids, is that there's no counterbalance 
This is global. There's no part of the world, even as we see China coming out, that's providing any form of stability here. We're all going through it and it's happening at a far more accelerated rate than we've ever seen before. I want to talk about tariffs because we still have tariffs, Anthony, on medical supplies coming from China, which I agree, the asymmetries between China and the United States needs tackling. But at this moment, I cannot understand why we don't remove those given the crisis that's going on in the healthcare system right now. Listen, you know, the, the president has changed his tune, so I certainly don't want to be as critical as I was being about the president. But if you read his campaign letters, I'm still on the uh, mailing list. Uh, they're, they're trying to position this as a Chinese virus and it's us versus China. And uh, they're going to campaign off of that. And so they don't want to take the tariffs off. And I just think this is a really poor time to come up with a campaign strategy and to put people at risk if they need medical supplies. And whether we like it or not, we made manufacturing decisions over five decades to move almost all of our manufacturing to China. So I think it's a mistake. They should have an emergency program to lift those tariffs right now uh, and continue to figure out ways to provide relief in an overwhelming way. People talk about a bazooka on Wall Street. I'm talking about a green tsunami, uh, green being money, uh, that waves over the United States and fortifies the United States and alleviates the anxiety that so many middle and lower middle class people feel in this country right now. Yeah, I, I wasn't sorry. I wasn't trying to make it about politics. It's a call to action from Congress. We need a Marshall plan here. Yeah, no, but I'm just saying that the president is not going to move on that because he's fighting. He's he, he's he's pitting himself against China. His most recent campaign it. letter said that Joe Joe Biden's with China. I know. There's not going to be an election in a depression if we don't fix this now. Anthony Scaramucci, great to have you with us. Thank you so hey, much. Um, Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're on the same page. Thank you. All right, let's bring in uh, John Defteris because he's been looking at uh, what's been going on in the markets right now. John, join me. I know you were listening to that discussion. We're seeing the, the tensions playing out within the financial markets, the dollar hoarding, the, uh, the concerns ongoing in, in equities, in bonds. It's... Um, it's a message here to policymakers that more is required. Yeah, it's interesting to see some of the cross currents that are taking place, uh, Julia, with the rush to the dollar. It's almost the uh, 2020 version of putting uh, money under the mattress uh, yet again. Uh, we do see the euro more stable after this uh, latest package coming from the European Central Bank. Uh, there is a natural in, uh, tendency to go to the Japanese yen. Uh, the pound is trading uh, right near a 1985 low, and that's because of the, the seizure of the economy taking place here and the reaction, or perhaps late reaction, by uh, Boris uh, Johnson. Uh, it, you know, it's fascinating to watch. We see Christine Lagarde acting like Super Mario, saying we'll do whatever it takes. And I was thinking in the context of when we had this discussion going back over a, a month ago, uh, the initial reaction was to compare this to the SARS of 2003, the coronavirus. It's much worse. Same thing as to compare to the global financial crisis of 2009 and 10. Uh, this is on a completely different scale. I just listened to your last conversation. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, the amount of money that's going to be needed to be injected here to restore confidence because it's not about the banking system. This is a consumer strike because they're looking like deers in the headlights right now. 
we have entire sectors that are under water and there's no transportation in the cities uh, so the consumers can't even move about and get back to work it is the uh, desperate situation and, and unlike uh, 2010 where we had this collaboration with the emerging markets we could tap into the wealth that china had uh, everybody's facing a severe storm and the collaboration that we used to have in the g20 is not there right now julia and, and this is why investors keep on running for the exits despite what the central banks around the world are doing and that's the scary part because the scale is nothing like what we saw in 2009 and 10. I couldn't agree more. There's no counterbalance. There's no counterweight here. John, great job. Thank you. And a beautiful backdrop there, too, to my earlier point on the show. Great to have you with us. Thank you. All right, coming up on First Move, we'll take a closer look at this year's top political risks, the geopolitics of this coronavirus situation. How can institutions lead us address it better? Stay with us. To first move, a political risk firm Eurasia Group has just released its top risks for 2020 as world leaders struggle to contain the coronavirus pandemic. Eurasia Group President Ian Bremmer joins us now. Ian, fantastic to have you on the show. It's a kind of culmination of all the risks you warn about going on at quick speed, institutional weakness, weak and dysfunctional leadership, uh, deglobalization, inequality all thrown in here, pressured by a global health crisis. I mean, it could be worse. <laughs> in really? the sense, Tell me why. <laughs> well, yeah, in the sense that the underlying economics, as well as the strength of the financial system, is actually uh, greater than it was in 2008 going into the Great Recession. The problem is that the politics are incredibly dysfunctional. The resilience in terms of institutions the polarization inside countries, the weakness of traditional alliances, and also the broad geopolitical confrontation, particularly between the U.S. and China, all makes it so much harder to get leadership to respond effectively uh, to this crisis as it rolls across the globe. Let's stick with the United States to begin. Do you think the gravity of the situation and what's required here to simply protect individuals, workers, the system, however uh, relative strength we have today versus what we had in the global financial crisis, is there? Are they understanding the gravity? Uh, we're late. Uh, so I, I certainly believe that Congress, the Fed, and now even the administration understands the scale of what needs to be done economically and financially um, to ensure that uh, the banking system functions, that uh, sectors are bailed out as the economy grinds to a halt on both the supply and the demand side. I believe that that is going to happen. But that is very different from the healthcare system, from the absence of tests, um, from the ability to ensure that cities don't get overwhelmed by the explosion of cases, creating panic and a level of social disorder. I do think that what we have seen in Northern Italy, including in Milan, which is one of the best run, best infrastructure cities in the world, you've seen what's happened there in the last week. I think that scenario is coming to some urban centers across the country. And obviously it's very painful to see that um, in the United States. It's interesting that you, you mentioned social unrest. I mean, that's 
projecting forward, for me, just several weeks based on conditions, based on fear, based on a lack of support network in this country, never mind anywhere else. And I, I'm sorry to keep bringing it back to the United States, but this is just one part of a far broader global issue that we see. I want to hone in on some tweets that you sent out about China, and we talked about this earlier on in the show. Since the World Health Organization began calling coronavirus a pandemic, 120,000 people a day have entered China. The quarantine begins tomorrow. Terribly alarming, but also to the point that you were just making there about Italy. We're looking at a situation where Italian deaths are going to exceed China. Italy population 60 million, China 1.4 billion. Ian, like, the, the dysfunction, the enormity of what we're seeing here is just astonishing. Well, I think let me put it in broader context to you. Of course, we don't necessarily trust those Chinese numbers, but irrespective, the scale of what is happening, the damage inside Italy and what we are likely to experience across parts of the U.S. is so much graver than what we have in China right now. It's so different than the 2008 crisis Coming out of that, the United States was taking the lead. We coordinated a G20 head of state meeting for the first time ever and led coordination politically and economically to ensure there wasn't a Great Depression. And all the countries in the world, our allies and our adversaries, recognized that the United States was the safe harbor in the storm. They needed to align with us. That is not what's happening here. Um, what you're seeing happening in Italy, what you're seeing happening in the United States shows poor leadership, shows a lack of comparative resilience, political resilience to crisis, while the Chinese are now announcing for the first day that they don't actually have any human-to-human -human transmissions inside China. Again, I don't necessarily believe that data, but I certainly do believe that the Chinese are a lot more confident domestically and internationally at a time where Americans are questioning their political system and at a time when allies are questioning America's ability and willingness to lead. And that does mean that coming out of this crisis in a few months or later, the global environment is going to be very different than what we're used to here in the United States, what you're used to across the Western world. Yeah, the big question Ian, is, can we pull together here? Because on top of what we're seeing in terms of economic depression terms is also a health crisis that the reason why we're doing this in the first place. Ian, we'll get you back to discuss this. Uh, Ian Bremer there, sir, thank you so much you. For, for joining us with your perspective. And what a chair behind you. It's throne-like, I notice. <laughs> we'll see you soon. All right. More on how the markets are responding to today's risks in just a moment. Stay with us here on First Move. Welcome back to First Move. Richard Quest joins us. So Richard, I know you were listening to that conversation there. You and I, I think, understand the gravity, the scale of response that's required to foster a recovery when we come the other side of this. The question is, can we all come together to fight it, as uh, Ian Bremer there was saying? 
I think that's going to be very difficult. I think the most important aspect of what I think you were talking about is this idea that a recovery is going to happen. Um, the way it was put this morning, there is a, I think I heard it was you, you saying, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. We just don't know how long that tunnel is going to be, uh, what other obstacles there will be. But be, let's be clear about this. I mean, Boeing may be trading at under 100 bucks, but the core issue is going to be for um, governments all around the world is which of your companies and which of your industries must you save? You are going to be, they are going to be put in the difficult position of choosing between the children. And not everybody will be able to be saved. Uh, so how do you save? How do you bail out whatever pejorative you want? How do you save those elements of the economy that are going to be vital when we come out of it? Wow, Richard. I'm not sure I disagree. I'm not sure I agree. I, I think that we don't have time to pick and choose. I think we have to flood the system, put in protections for, for workers that are going to lose their jobs, set a treasury fund up to give money to small and medium sized enterprises. I, I just, I think that we, we just have to do whatever we can to shore up the system. And then you penalize those that need the support later on. We just have to protect everything for the next two to three months. I don't know whether that's, I don't know, that's, I think that's desirable, Julia, but I don't know yeah. whether it's possible. I think at the ultimate end, you're going to, you're going to have to make some very hard decisions. Uh, otherwise you are, and, and it's a perfectly valid point, you are bailing out everyone. And if you're prepared to do that, that's a luxurious position to be in. I'm just afraid if you don't do that, then the people that get crushed most <laughs> are the weakest in society, yeah. the most vulnerable. Um, and we'll continue to debate about this. I know we will. I yeah. think what the European Central Bank did overnight for me and just saying, we will buy anything. We will support <laughs> this system at whatever cost. I think we need to see that from the Federal Reserve, even if it means it could potentially be weaponized by rogue leadership. You've just, you've just stated it. It's weaponized. This is an election year in the US. As soon as, I promise you this, as soon as we see uh, the curve peak, there will be back to politics as normal. This country has little capacity for managing to avoid that, particularly at, at a time of an election. It's a global crisis, uh, Richard. With, with national politics. Always. Richard Quest. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, that just about wraps up the show. We are weaker for these markets. Richard will be back in two hours' time with The Express to keep you abreast of further developments on the coronavirus outbreak and beyond. You've been watching First Move. Take care of yourselves, and we'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.